Let's read together then, shall we, from Matthew's account of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll read the first 12 verses as we continue to familiarize ourselves with these very familiar Beatitudes, blessed attitudes, or in our case, Beatitudes. I like that. Matthew 5 verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. And as such, it demands, I'm sure, something of our time and attention this morning. So we come in this new series to the second of these Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Of all the paradoxes of the Beatitudes, for that is what they are when you focus upon them closely, this one surely is the most violent. Wouldn't you agree? It is an astonishing thing to speak of the joy of sorrow. It is an astonishing thing to speak of the gladness of grief. It's bizarre to speak of the bliss of the brokenhearted. The world, of course, regards a statement like this as utterly ridiculous. Happy? Happy are those who mourn? Stupid, the world suggests. The one thing the world tries to shun, perhaps more than anything else, is mourning. Its whole organization is based upon the supposition that that is something to avoid. The philosophy of the world, brethren, is forget your troubles. Turn your back on your troubles. Do everything that you might not face your troubles. The world says things are bad enough as they are without us focusing upon our troubles. There's the old 
wartime song, isn't there? That kind of summarizes the world's attitude. Pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. And yet Jesus suggests, blessed are those who mourn, who are troubled, who are sorrowful, who are in pain. The word that we have translated in our English versions for this word mourn is penthane. It's a very strong word in the original Greek. It is kind of the sorrow that pierces our hearts. Friends, this is no gentle sentimental twilight sadness within which a person might languish or even luxuriate. This is a sorrow that is poignant, a sorrow that is piercing, a sorrow that is intense. It's the kind of sorrow that cannot be hidden within. It has to be manifested. It has to be expressed. It is seen clearly upon someone's disposition. That's this kind of sorrow of which Jesus speaks. So, what did Jesus mean when he speaks here of the, the blessedness, the bliss of the brokenhearted, of the grief-stricken? Four suggestions, if I may. Four suggestions. It might well be that at least to some extent, this beatitude is meant to be taken literally. There is little doubt that sorrow has a value of its own and that it has a place in our lives that nothing else can take. We've already focused upon that wonderful story in John's Gospel, chapter 11 where there is recorded Christ's wonderful claim to be the resurrection and the life. However, immediately preceding that extraordinary claim to Martha, we have what might be considered to be a quite startling revelation. We have a passage that clearly reveals that the Lord Jesus Christ the only begotten of the Father in heaven, actually, actively permitted pain and sorrow in the lives of those he loved. When he heard of the sickness of Lazarus, rather than travel straightway to Lazarus' sickbed to, to touch him and to heal him, because I'm sure that was the expectation of Mary and Martha when they sent word to the Master. We read, however, that Jesus, when he learned of the sickness of the one he loved, John's Gospel 11, verse 3, we read in verse 6 that Jesus stayed where he was two more days. Subsequent to Jesus' delay, of course, we read of Lazarus' death. 
And we read of the pain and the grief and the anxiety and the anguish of Lazarus' sisters Mary and Martha. We discern, friends, very clearly here in that moving passage that there are times when actually love permits pain. Why? Why would our loving Heavenly Father, who loves us with an everlasting love, allow pain? In the hearts and lives of his children. Well, we haven't time to go into too much detail as far as John's Gospel, chapter 11, chapter 12 are concerned. But when you get the chance, it seems clear to me that that pain tests, it develops the sincerity and the perseverance of a true faith. It's easy, isn't it, to remain true to God when everything's well. Less so, arguably, when times are tough, when circumstances are challenging. Love permits pain to test the sincerity of our faith. Love permits pain because God knows that pain because of the extremity of the circumstance, drives us to the Savior. Love permits pain, because perhaps through pain and through sorrow and through trial and through temptation, we realize some previously unrealized side of the Savior's character. Perhaps if it were not for Lazarus' passing, Martha would never have heard those wonderful words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Perhaps if if Jesus hadn't allowed Lazarus' death, we might never have had those scriptures for us to, to, to draw upon. And arguably, love permits pain because in the midst of pain, we are often led to acts of service and sacrifice and devotion that previously would have never have been been led to. The very next chapter of John 11, John 12, we read of of an act of sacrificial devotion that's quite frankly mind-boggling. Now who's to say that Mary would have been in the place to offer that sacrifice when she broke that expensive jar of perfume and anointed our Lord's feet in preparation of his death and burial, of course. Who's to say that she would have been up for it, so to speak, unless she'd experienced the pain of John chapter 11. You see, she was broken in the midst of the pain. And consequently, therefore, was in a place in her life in the very next chapter where she could offer all that she had to offer, anointing the feet of Jesus. It was told that on one particular occasion, the great musician Elgar was listening to a young girl singing. She had a beautiful voice. And a well near faultless technique. But she just missed greatness. Something was missing. Elgar, however, 
commented to those around him saying, She will be great, but only when something happens to break her heart. William Barclay says, It is in sorrow that a man discovers the things that truly matter. It is in sorrow that man discovers the meaning of friendship, the meaning of love. It is in sorrow that a man discovers whether his faith is merely a superficial ornament of life or the essential foundation upon which his whole life depends. It is in sorrow that man discovers God. Blessed are those who mourn. It might well be that this beatitude should be taken quite literally. Because in the midst of our sorrow, then we learn lessons and our characters are developed in such a way that no other experience could help us with. Secondly, this beatitude may be referring, I'm reading a little into the text perhaps, but it might be referring to the mourning caused by the necessary struggles of the Christian life. Those of us who are Christian here this morning, put your hand up if you don't struggle in the Christian life. There's a surprise. When we became a Christian, of course, we embraced a cross. Jesus said, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Naturally, therefore, by taking up a cross, we are embracing a struggle. And that is what the Christian life is. It is a struggle. And Jesus says, reassuringly, I believe, blessed are you when you struggle in your Christian life. The flip side of that, of course, is there's a kind of a warning for those who profess faith and are not struggling. Those who have a kind of triumphalistic approach to, to, to Christianity. <laughs> because one wonder what kind of pilgrimage one has embraced, if that's the case. Luke repeats this beatitude in a slightly different form in Luke 6, 21. He says, blessed are those who weep now, for you will laugh. He kind of confirms this particular uh, interpretation of the beatitude. We are struggling, brethren, because the Christian life is a struggle in the here and now. But hallelujah, whilst we struggle for time, our three score and ten, a little less, a little more, depending upon which or how we are blessed, in eternity, Luke says, we will laugh. In eternity, Jesus says, you will be Blessed. One of my favorite stories is that recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, 18 through 31, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You'll remember the story well, I'm sure. 
For in hell, after pleading with Abraham to comfort him with a drop of water, the rich man received this reply from Abraham. Verse 25, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now, Lazarus is comforted. And you? You are in agony. (laughs) We all have a choice to make, don't we, in this life. We either embrace the narrow path with all that it brings, the challenges, the pains, the sorrows, the struggles of the Christian life. But to embrace that path in the short term is to be assured that in eternity, we, like Lazarus, will be comforted. We'll be comforted. Those who prefer, because it's easier, to embrace the narrow, the, the, the broad path. The broad path is easy. Live as the world lives. Well, like the rich, rich man, you want to live it up now, unfortunately, the eternal rewards are not pleasant. Thirdly, it might be that this beatitude means the blessedness, this blessedness belongs to those who sorrow for sin. Blessed are those who are are mourning for the sin the sadness, the suffering of the world. It has been claimed that in many ways the most unchristian of all sins is the sin of contempt. In the patrician, those who like English literature, John Galsworthy makes Milton say, I quote, the mob, the mob, How I loathe the mob. He's referring to your ordinary, everyday, common garden person, of course. The peasant. How I loathe the mob, he says. I hate its mean stupidities. I hate the sound of its voice and the look on its face. It is so ugly. It is so little. George Bernard Shaw, of similar mindset, said, I have never had any feeling for the working classes except a desire to abolish them (laughs) and to replace them with sensible people. (laughs) God forbid. God forbid that we Christian folk would have such an attitude. But sometimes we do. We look upon the world and our attitude, my friends, should not be one of contempt or of disgust. We should look upon the world and see the world as Jesus sees the world. His heart breaks. You read the Gospels, regularly throughout the Gospels, we read the expression that Jesus was moved with compassion. Mark 1 verse 41, Mark 6 verse 34, Mark 8 verse 2, and we can go on and on and on. Jesus moved with compassion. Now I don't want to bore you with Greek grammar, or maybe I do. 
But this is a fascinating expression. A single word in the Greek translated in the English, he moved with compassion. It's a word so complicated actually that I can't even pronounce it. But at the, the, the root of the word is from the Greek word for bowels. So Jesus was moved, as it were, to the very bowels of his being. He was moved to compassion, to the very depths of his being. Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Ouch. I'll be honest, I'm sure you're too spiritual to have this terrible mindset, but on occasions I, I, I read the papers, I watch the news, and oh, feelings of contempt well up. <laughs> feelings of disgust and despair, and oh my goodness me, how can they do such a thing? How can they be like that? Disgraceful. And then the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder and says, My child, there but for the grace of God go you. (laughs) Jesus saw the world. He saw them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion. He was moved for them to the very depths of his being. Our Lord was a man of compassion, wasn't he? The basic meaning of the incarnation is that God cared immensely for men that in Jesus Christ he deliberately chose to identify himself with sin. Isn't that incredible? God the Father was so moved with compassion that in Jesus Christ he purposefully, he strategically decided to identify himself with sin. And yet we Christians have a bit of a higher and mighty attitude at times. And yet Jesus identified himself with sin. Perhaps here Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn, who weep, who weep. For the sins of the world. Because Jesus weeps. Excuse me. Fourthly, my final point is, it might be that this is referring to those who weep for their own sins. Those who mourn and grieve for their own sins. Blessed is the man who is moved to bitter sorrow at the realization of his own, her own sin. The way to God, of course, is the way of the broken heart. Penitence is the first act of the Christian life. And penitence, of course, is sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Paul said, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. The psalmist says in Psalm 38, 18, I confess my iniquity. I am troubled, the author says, I am sorry for my sin. In the spiritual biography of the Apostle Paul, 
there's, I discern a strange progression. It's fascinating. In Paul's first letter ever written, probably, the letter to the Christian church in, in Galatia, written about A.D. 48, for argument's sake, Paul calls himself, biographically, he calls himself, Galatians 1 verse 1, Paul the Apostle. Rightly so, for that is what he was. But in his second letter, arguably, about seven years later, written in A.D. 55 to the Corinthians, he calls himself, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, and not to be called not fit to be called an apostle. See the progression of his mindset? He begins his ministry calling himself boldly, I'm the apostle Paul. Seven years in, he says, well, I'm the least of the apostles. And then another eight years on, in around about A.D. 63, he writes to the Ephesian Christians. And he calls himself in Ephesians 3, verse 8, I am the less than the least of all God's people. He's even now dropped his title of apostleship and just calling himself, I'm just one of God's people, but I'm the least of all God's people. And at the very end of his life, fascinatingly, he writes to young Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, he calls himself the worst of all sinners. Isn't that a fascinating biography? My friends, the closer we get to Jesus, the more conscious we become of our failures and our faults and our unworthiness of Him. That's the only explanation. The closer He got to Jesus, the more the Apostle Paul understood the wonders of Calvary the more he realized he wasn't just he wasn't the apostle he wasn't the least of the apostles he was the least of all god's people he was worse than all sinners perhaps christ is saying blessed are those who mourn for their own sin why should we mourn for our own sin because it was that sin that nailed jesus to the cross it nailed it to the, him to the cross. In my first pastoral charge in Hesham, in North Lancashire, we, for a time, showed uh, the Jesus film on a regular basis as we sought to do an outreach to the local gypsy community. With some great success, we saw tremendous move of the Spirit and, and some two to three hundred of those gypsies coming through for the Lord Jesus Christ. On one occasion, after the, towards, the, 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 towards the end of the film, towards where the crucifixion is being portrayed, uh, one of the older congregation, a stalwart of the church, got up from the presentation of the film and walked out. And I, I was at the back and I wondered if she was well. And so I, I went to, to catch, catch her up and I asked her, <laughs> Eileen, her name. I said, Eileen, is everything okay? Are you all right? Oh, Pastor, she says, oh, I can't watch that. And I say, why, why can't you watch it? She says this, I quote, and I wrote it down. She says, because the closer I get to Jesus, 
the more I realized just how much it cost Jesus to bear away my sin. And the more I realized how miserable my efforts are compared to His. And I simply can't watch it again. It exposes me, she says. It exposes me. Oh, the bliss of those who mourn for their own sin. For they shall be comforted. And here's the promise that we end on wonderfully, friends. Blessed are those who are genuinely sorrowing, bereaved and bereft. Blessed are those, says Jesus, who are struggling in the Christian life. Blessed are those, says Jesus, who look upon the sins of the world and grieve for those sins. Blessed are those, says Jesus, who search the innermost recesses of their own hearts and grieve for their sin. For they shall be comforted. Hallelujah. Comforted. Ah, this is a powerful word. I wish I could give you a Greek lesson. Comforted. It's a word, parakalein, a familiar word to many of us. Parakletos is used by John when he refers to, to uh, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. So it's a derivative of the same. Blessed are those who, are, who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Parakalein. It means to comfort, to console, but it means more than that. The, the preposition para is implying that one draws alongside one. And that's what God is intimating here. He, he doesn't leave us and, and comfort us from a distance. It's not just a pen letter kind of com comfort. It's not just an email he sends us. It's not just a, a sympathy card that he sends in the post to us. No, no, no. It's, it's para. He draws alongside. It speaks of him entering into our comfort. With us. Isn't that something? He enters in to our pain. He enters in to our sorrow. He enters in to our sickness, our suffering, our mourning. He enters in. Hallelujah. I love the song. He, he lifts us up. He embraces us, if you like, as we well say. He gives us a great big touch. That's what's being communicated here. Isn't, isn't God good? Isn't He good? He doesn't just send me a wee email. <laughs> he doesn't send me a sympathy card. Nice though those things are to receive. He enters in. He draws alongside and He enters in. Hallelujah. Oh, the bliss. Of those who mourn for Jesus by his Holy Spirit, the Parakletos enters in by his Holy Spirit to comfort us. Jesus, as the old chorus goes, is a wonderful Savior. He will carry us through. When the battle is done and the victory is won, my Lord. 
will carry me through. That is what's being communicated here. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Such is our Savior. Such is our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you, Jesus, for your promise to comfort personally, intimately by your Spirit. Oh, Lord, if we're struggling, if the road for us is rough and steep, if we are bombarded this way and that by all manner of question, perhaps doubts are flooding our hearts and minds. Maybe we're confused, misunderstood, misunderstanding. Lord Jesus, you've said, you've promised. I will comfort you. Father, give us the faith to cast an eye heavenward and seek that comfort, for it is surely ours. In the name of Jesus. Amen.